Most people don't realize it, but the very first relationship that God created was the relationship of marriage. God created a man and a woman. And he brought them together with these words, which are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And by that significant act, God was establishing the importance of marriage. And he was establishing his preferred pattern for marriage. One man joining with one woman in a covenant relationship where they would experience an intimate physical union. God is telling us that he made men and women as sexual beings and he intends for our sexuality to be expressed within this very unique relationship called marriage. Marriage is a great gift from God and we have been messing it up ever since he gave it to us. For many years, God's people practiced polygamy One man with multiple wives, a pattern that God never endorsed. And then when God's people finally started to figure out that monogamy was the goal, they undermined marriage through uncontrolled lust and through casual divorce. And that was the situation at the time of Jesus. In his day, marriage commitments often did not last. Divorce for frivolous reasons was common, and women often were the victims of men who did not express their sexuality in healthy ways. And so Jesus decides to tackle those issues in part of his Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's really important to understand that his purpose is not to tell people everything they need to know about marriage and sex and divorce and remarriage. His purpose is to elevate the status of marriage, to challenge men to harness their sexuality and to protect women from becoming victims. So let's see what we can learn from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. The words of Jesus, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, in this part of the sermon, Jesus has been explaining that life is not simply a matter of evaluating outward behavior. It's not a matter of just following religious rules. The proper way to live out the law of God, the proper way to embrace the values of the kingdom of God, is to look into our own hearts. And he applies this principle in a unique way to the seventh commandment, which is a prohibition against adultery. And Jesus redefines this commandment by telling his listeners that adultery is more than just a physical act. It's also a mental and emotional 
act. He says that adultery includes lustful looks and even what's in our hearts. Now, we all understand that if we're married and we engage in sex with someone other than our spouse, that it's a violation of our vows. We're being physically unfaithful. But when we lust after someone other than our spouse, it's also a violation of our marriage vows because we're allowing desire to flourish. We're engaging in sexual fantasies and we're giving away part of our head and our heart to another person. Jesus wants people to know that adultery is any form of sexual behavior or expression that breaks the marriage covenant. Now, I don't know how I don't know how these words hit you, but Jesus' audience would be shocked. They would be shocked. They've been trained to, to be rule keepers who focus on outward behavior so they would feel righteous if they've not had sex outside of marriage. But lustful looks? Lustful hearts? I, I think that people in that audience listening to Jesus might be highly likely to think if that's the definition of adultery, then nobody's exempt. At some point, we're all guilty. And if they're thinking that way, they'd be right because none of us has a perfect thought life or a completely pure heart. And did you notice that Jesus does not direct this comment specifically to married men, he's talking about anyone who looks lustfully at a woman. And I think it's fair to say that any man, whether married or not, who looks at a woman, married or not, is committing adultery based on the words of Jesus. He's saying that every lustful look is a violation of God's intention for sexual desire to be expressed only within the safe and secure confines of a marriage. Marriage is a special and holy commitment. And God asks all of us, to protect it. And any of us can undermine marriage when we engage in inappropriate actions or looks or thoughts. And we do that because of the perpetual problem of lust. It's a problem that's as old as the human race. And lust is a problem because when it's generated, it needs an outlet. And if it's not brought under control, it will be expressed in some way that's destructive. As Jesus notes here, lust can be expressed by looking at another person in a way that generates inappropriate desire. And in our day, it goes way beyond that. We can generate lust by indulging in pornography. And whoever we look at, or whatever we look at. It is so easy to rationalize our behavior and say, I'm just looking. What's the harm? And the answer is, we're doing a lot of harm because we're dehumanizing the people who are the focus of our lust. When we lust, 
we reduce human beings, men and women made in the image of God, we reduce them to objects of our desire. We treat them as a means to our own sexual gratification. And it is so very, very selfish. It's disrespectful to people. It's disrespectful to God and it is incredibly harmful. And far too often, it's men who do this to women. We do it today, and they did it in the first century. And back then, in virtually all cases, the woman was blamed for the man's lust. Now, now if we think about that for just a minute, we might find that rather amusing because women in the Middle East were almost completely covered. I mean, what's there to get excited about if you can't see anything? And yet a man would blame a woman for exposing too much of her face. He would blame a woman for inciting her lust if she took off her head covering and exposed her hair. And in every culture, men find it very convenient to blame women for our lust. But Jesus puts the responsibility for lust on the person doing the lusting. And that was true then, and it's true now. And having said that, hopefully we all understand the difference between dressing to look presentable and dressing to look provocative. And the fact is, both men and women can be guilty of dressing in ways that are deliberately designed to entice. And that's not a healthy motive. And we should try to avoid it. But someone's apparel is not an excuse for our lust. Now, Jesus focuses his comments on men because in the first century, all of the power in the male-female relationship belonged to men. And that's not exclusively true today because we live in a much more egalitarian society. And furthermore, women, like men, are created as sexual beings. And it should be obvious, but, but this means that women, like men, can have healthy sexual desires. It also means that women can struggle with lust. Women can be lured into pornography. Women can commit adultery. And so Jesus' teaching here can apply to both men and women. And because lust is such a severe problem that can attack us and affect us, Jesus urges us to take some severe measures, if necessary, to get it under control. And he does it using some rather shocking language. He says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, if that's what it takes to get your lust under control. Now, now I hope we understand Jesus is using hyperbole. He does not intend for us to take this literally because his whole point is focused on what's taking place inside our minds and our hearts, not just what's taking place outwardly in our bodies. And a literal interpretation of Jesus' words is not going to solve anyone's problems with lust. 
Pastor and, and author Ed Dobson one time met a young man who really struggled with lust, and he decided to take Jesus literally. And he gouged out one of his eyes. And what that young man tragically learned is it didn't solve his problem. Because he still lusted after women. He just now did it with one eye instead of two. It's heartbreaking. You see, Jesus is not talking about maiming ourselves. He's talking about protecting ourselves. And in practical terms, this means we may need to guard our eyes by changing what we see. We may need to be more selective about the movies or TV shows or books or magazines that we expose ourselves to. We may need to guard our hands by placing certain things beyond our reach. That's what my friend Patrick did to address his problem with pornography. Every Saturday, his wife would go off to work and Patrick would be at home alone. And that's when he would spend hours on the internet looking at porn. And he wanted to conquer his lust. And so he got together with his friend Tim and they read and prayed over this very passage. And they came up with a solution. Here's what they did. Every Friday afternoon, Patrick drove to Tim's house. And he dropped off his computer and his cell phone. And so on Saturday, with no way to access the internet, he was engaged in other productive activities. And he would always take time on Saturdays to pray and say, God, help me to get self-control. Help me to master my lust. And then after church on Sunday, Tim would give the electronics back to Patrick. Patrick did that for more than two years, along with a lot of intensive prayer. He metaphorically gouged out his eye and cut off his hand, and it set him free. Set him free from the grip of lust. And yet he wasn't able to do this alone. He needed Tim's help. And and so I think Patrick's story is a great reminder to us, a great example to us, that when we are struggling, we need to lean on God and we need to lean on each other. And we can't put any area of life off limits for support and encouragement and discussion within the family of God. And men, we need to be honest with each other about our weaknesses and our struggles, and we need to encourage each other so that we can control and express our sexual desires in ways that are healthy and honor God. And women, I think at times we have failed you by not acknowledging that you are sexual beings. I think at times we've implied that godly women don't ever talk about sex. But how can any of us learn healthy behavior without reading the Bible, talking about it with other believers, praying about it together? We can't take this area of life and put it off limits. And particularly today, this is so important. Our culture is talking about sex all the time. And often in not very healthy ways. How can Jesus guide your sexuality and my sexuality if we don't talk about it together and pray about it together and help each other figure out how to live as godly men and women? 
Jesus speaks these words to help us confront the perpetual problem of lust and master it so that it does not master us. And when we do this, we honor God and we keep sex where it belongs, within marriage. Jesus is reminding us that lust hurts us, lust hurts others, and it causes us to miss out on the very best that God has for us. And because marriage is so special within the kingdom of God, lust unfortunately undermines and devalues marriage. And then divorce, which Jesus talks about next does more than just devalue a marriage. Unfortunately, it tragically ends a marriage. Let's look at what Jesus says starting in verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, I think there are few tragedies in life greater than a failed marriage. A relationship that begins with love and romance and hope and promise ends in bitterness and despair, incredible hurt. I I can't even begin to imagine what that pain must be like. I I think it's probably a deep-seated hurt unlike any other. And we need to have great compassion for people who have experienced divorce. And we need to understand that Jesus is not condemning people who've been divorced. He wants to shift people's understanding so they place a high value on marriage and will not treat divorce lightly. And to understand Jesus' words, it's really important to realize that divorce in the first century was very different than it is today. One of the most important factors is this. In most cases, virtually all cases, only the husband could initiate a divorce. Whether or not the wife wanted a divorce, it usually wasn't her call. She was pretty powerless. And furthermore, it was generally accepted that a husband could divorce his wife for just about any reason, no matter how frivolous. It was a very low view of marriage. And it put women at great risk. Unmarried women in that culture were extremely vulnerable because they depended on their husbands for income, for housing, for food, and for basic social acceptability. The lifestyle and status of a divorced woman would take a huge hit, and she had little recourse. So Jesus here is not just standing up for marriage. He's standing up for women. And he does so by taking a command that was given to the Jews by Moses and he redefines it. You can find that command in Deuteronomy 24. And it's a command that came to be viewed as a wholesale permission to divorce. Excuse me. In other words, as long as you got a divorce certificate, you were good. 
problem is, that's not how God values marriage. God designed marriage as a relationship designed to last. And he doesn't want us looking for reasons to divorce. He wants us looking for reasons to be faithful to our vows. He wants us to take parts of our marriage that may not be working and fix them so that we can honor our vows and stay together and experience the very best that he has for us. And even the exception that Jesus mentions here of sexual immorality, that's not a reason to immediately head to divorce court. With God's help, even great hurts and betrayals in marriage can be healed. I've seen it happen more than one time. When couples who have hurt each other deeply have said, we believe God wants to keep us together. And they have worked through forgiveness and the rebuilding of trust and reconciliation. If we're looking for reasons to get out, I think our head and heart are not in the right place. But Jesus is really going after the men here. And the key point I believe he's making occurs in the first part of verse 32. He says, husbands, if you divorce your wife in a cavalier manner, you make her into an adulterer. Not in the sexual sense, but in the covenant sense. By getting a certificate of divorce, the husband has caused his wife to violate her marriage vows without her consent. And thus he makes his wife guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery, which Jesus recited back in verse 27 to initiate this whole conversation. He says, it's on you, husband. If you have all that power and all that responsibility, you must be very careful. And not treat divorce life lightly. And don't make your wife an unwilling victim. Now, because of what Jesus says in verse 32, many Christians conclude that even in cases where divorce is appropriate, remarriage is not an option. Because he says anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's the question that occurs to me. Because of the situation in that culture, if a wife is divorced against her wishes, why would Jesus victimize her a second time by forbidding her to remarry? Is that really what he intends? I'm just not sure we can draw that conclusion, particularly when we realize this. The certificate of divorce, which Jesus refers to in this passage, typically stated that each person after the divorce was free to remarry. It was the normal understanding of Jesus' audience that when a marriage ended, both the man and the woman could remarry. And I don't think Jesus is denying that. I think he's talking about one particular implication of remarriage. And once again, he's putting a burden of responsibility on the husband. He's saying if you marry a divorced woman, a woman who likely had no say in the dissolving of her marital bonds, then you become an adulterer because her original marriage vows still stand. And here's the real 
underhanded problem of that day, which Jesus is going after. A man might lust after a woman who is not his wife. And he wants to avoid the commandment that says, don't commit adultery, so he doesn't have an affair. He just divorces his wife and marries the other woman. Problem solved. He gets to indulge his lust. And he still can feel righteous because he's not violated that narrow understanding of the commandment against adultery. And Jesus is saying, no, that is wrong. That is very, very wrong. You may think you're upholding the letter of God's law, but you are certainly violating the spirit of God's law. You are an adulterer when you engage in casual divorce and remarriage simply to gratify your own sexual desires. So I don't think in this very brief comment that Jesus is giving us rules about divorce and remarriage. He's speaking into a cultural situation and he's challenging people, examine your motives. I I know we all like clear rules to guide our behavior. But if we become rule keepers, then we make the same mistake as the Pharisees did. And Jesus' whole point in this message is to get us to look beyond rules, to not point our fingers at other people, and instead to look at our own hearts. An external rule following will never bring our sexuality into its proper place. We need to ask God to come and change us from the inside out. As I think about divorce, I have to say that I'm saddened by the fact that a lot of churches at times have treated divorced people like pariahs. And I don't think there's anything here in the words of Jesus that tells us we can or should place divorced people into some special category. And I think maybe that's easier for us to realize when we reflect on the fact that we're all broken people. We all have areas of weakness and struggle. And whether it's anger or gluttony, lying, greed, gossip, we've all got junk we're dealing with. And we need to keep that in mind as we interact with other people so that we approach them with some humility and not with attitudes of judgment. And here's what I think is the very best news of all. There's nothing in the words of Jesus from which we can conclude that people who have experienced the particular pain of divorce are beyond the hope and the help and the healing of God. And even in cases where people may have divorced for the flimsiest of reasons. God's love and forgiveness are available. Divorce, as with any area of life where we may fall short of God's best, in this area and in all areas, we have access to God's love and His mercy and His grace when we sincerely acknowledge our hurts and our failures. 
And no matter what we've done, no matter how we've stumbled, no matter how we hurt, we can ask God to heal us and forgive us. And he will give us a fresh start. As I said at the beginning, Jesus' purpose here is not to say everything that needs to be said about marriage and divorce and sex. He does want us to know that marriage is important, extremely important in the kingdom of God, and that marriage is a commitment that's designed to last. It is the special relationship where sexual desire can be expressed in the way that's designed by God. And whatever season of life we find ourselves in, whether we're married or unmarried, Jesus wants us to honor the value of marriage in the kingdom of God. For those of us who are married, our marriage is not a license to unbridled self-indulgence and sexual gratification. We need to express our sexuality in ways that demonstrate love and respect for our spouse. And we need to take seriously what Jesus says here, that we cannot give way to lust or consider divorce lightly. And for those who are unmarried, God asks you to hold back and not engage in sexual activity. He asks that you too not give way to lust. And we need to recognize that your path is not always an easy one. And then all of us, as we work through our own sexual desires, we need to take great care that another person never becomes the victim, even inadvertently, of our own pursuit of sexual gratification. We need to be very careful of who and what we look at and how we look at them. And at various times, we're going to have questions about sex. There's going to be times when some people in our community of faith are going to be hurting or struggling in this area of life, and that's when we need to come alongside each other. We need to help each other discern God's truth and live it out. And when people in our church family fail, as they will, we need to extend some grace. We don't kick people when they're down. We help them up. We help them get back on track in following Jesus. And we help each other step by step move closer to becoming the men and women that God wants us to be. That's why God gave us this community of faith called the church. And our support and encouragement of one another is so vital in every area of life as we strive to become more faithful disciples. And I believe that in this day and age, it's particularly important that we support and encourage one another in the area of our sexuality. Let's not be afraid to talk about it.